0: Today we live in a modern culture caught up in the frenzy and preoccupation of becoming happy and successful quickly. A myriad of books have been written on how to achieve such happiness and, and quick success uh, that cater to the modern culture's desire for quick success. Books have been written, for example, on how to invest and get rich, often quickly, how to look beautiful how to lose 40 pounds in a month while still eating all you want, Um, how to win friends and influence people, how to grow your hair back in four easy steps. It doesn't work. Um, So there are a lot of contemporary formulas floating around on being happy and successful. Success and happiness are catchwords for Americans. Our TV commercials are geared toward portraying products, which supposedly will help us achieve success and happiness. And it's the VIPs, uh, the stars that uh, uh, advertise these things. Supposedly they've used them and they have achieved uh, some significant success, a degree of success and happiness, whether it's Calvin Klein jeans or whatever toothpaste we're told to uh, use or particular kinds of beer. uh, It's always, it seems to be, we're going to be popular Many of us will be considered by our culture to be happy and successful if we achieve, achieve a certain level of education, a certain level of financial stability, uh, a, a roof over our head, a comfortable place to live. Um, probably if you had to reduce it down, the definition of happiness by many Americans, uh, perhaps people in the West, would be an emotional feeling that results from the incoming tide of good circumstances, often physically good circumstances. How does this idea of success and happiness correspond with a biblical view? Well, Psalm 1, I think we'll find an answer here. We'll find here a definition of happiness and success as well as how they can be achieved. By the way, if we can understand this psalm, it'll go help us go a long way to understanding the whole book of Psalms because we're going to see that this psalm together with Psalm 2, uh, there's no superscription, no title for Psalm 2, probably together, there are a number of uh, commentators that think together they form an introduction to the whole book of Psalms and I, I think that's on the right track. So let's look at Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 give us an essential key for success and happiness. Let's read it again. How blessed, or we can translate how happy. Is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. What we find actually here in verse 1 is the the first element, the first ingredient to what happiness is. Is. Look at it again, just verse 1. How happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. What's this telling us? What's the first element uh, that will help us towards happiness? Well, happiness comes by not living out our lives in the counsel of the ungodly world. What is this happiness here, or this, this blessedness? It can be translated either way, actually. The Hebrew word can refer to our usual understanding of an emotional condition, but it can also mean a deeper spiritual disposition. And that's probably its meaning here. So it refers to the spiritual condition of one whose life is characterized by walking along the path of God's word. Later in the Psalms, for example, in Psalm 119, we find this. How happy, Psalm 19, verse 1, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. How happy are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. In verse 10 of Psalm 119, With all my heart I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. It's a heart condition, a good heart condition so that emotional feelings may or may not follow such a condition. But nevertheless, if you're in that condition, you're happy slash blessed. Such a happy condition is not shaken by circumstances. A number of years ago, I had a friend that was a Christian married to uh, his wife. and She was antagonistic to his faith, and there was a lot of emotional turmoil in that household. And uh, he often experienced uh, a lot of emotional tribulation and sadness. And yet, I, I would call him a happy person. He, he had a close relationship with the Lord that got him through these circumstances. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6 says uh, to the Thessalonians, who had just become recently uh, converted, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Why? Because you received the word in the midst of much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Those two can come together. You can have tribulation, but you can have joy in the midst of it. Or listen to the believers to whom the author of Hebrews was writing. In chapter 10 and verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. How many of us would, listen to the wording, how many of us would accept joyfully the seizure of our property? This is a different joy than uh, a lot of people can experience. But there are too many Christians whose faith rises or falls upon the emotions Of the moment. Now, in the latter part of verse 1, we find out more specifically why this person is happy. Notice again how happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The happiness is explained by what this person does not do. This person does not live life out in the intimate company of godless unbelievers. And did, did you notice there's a progression here? Progression of walking. You're moving, and then of standing, you're becoming more stationary, and then of sitting. And likewise, the progression is matched by the words counsel, leading to a pattern that is a way, and then a seat, Uh, probably even the nouns wicked, sinners, and scoffers. Wicked and sinners, probably synonymous, but it leads, if you continue in that way to being a scoffer, not just a wicked person and a sinner, but one who scoffs at the righteous who attempt to please God. Now, it's interesting to see, as I mentioned, that this psalm uh, appears to be uh, an introduction to the whole Psalter uh, together with Psalm 2. And notice the contrast uh, in chapter 2 and verse One, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. See, uh, this is the kind of stand that's being talked about in verse 1. Don't stand in the path of sinners, even though it's a different Hebrew word. It's synonymous. The rulers take counsel together. This is the counsel that's talked about there in verse 1. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Because this is a counsel against the Lord, Psalm 2 tells us. They take counsel, Psalm 2, verse 2, against the Lord against his anointing. Let us tear their fetters apart. What are the fetters? Cast away their cords from us. What is that? It is the word of God that fences us in and yet it is a pleasure for the true believer to be fenced in by it because therein is ironically true liberation that the unbeliever does not understand. And in fact, This counsel is most elaborated in the way that this psalm ultimately, in fact, Psalm 2 is a prophecy, and listen to how it's fulfilled so that we can understand really what this counsel is of the world and what it opposes. Notice how it was fulfilled. In Acts 4.25, it says that by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David did say, why did the Gentiles rage? The peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For truly in this city in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou disanoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So ultimately this council, yes, it's against God and it's against his Messiah as well that we know from the New Testament is Jesus Christ. Now, the wicked in the Old Testament refers to that person who breaks God's law and and doesn't want to repent and has no forgiveness. This word counsel can mean a design or a purpose. In other words, if we we retranslate verse 1, how happy is the man who does not walk according to the design, the purposes of the wicked. The idea being that the godly person does not We do not align our lives according to the disobedient purpose of the wicked. This word for sinners, again, nor stand in the path of sinners. One of the concrete uses of it refers to stone throwers in the Israelite army who would not send the target by an inch. It's the idea. To send, then, is miss the target. So these people who are against the Lord, their counsel is not of the Lord and it is a counsel that always misses the mark of God's word because it wants to. It wants to set up their own rules and their own laws because they want to throw the fetters apart, as Psalm 2 and verse 2 said. So the happy person does not live out his or her life in the counsel of the ungodly world. Who are those whom you and I are choosing to influence us? Who are those who you and I are choosing to give us counsel? Are they those whose life purpose is to please God or those either who are indifferent or maybe openly antagonistic to Christ? Psalm 1 is saying, not that we shouldn't have non-Christian friends, but that Those whom we choose to influence us, those whom we choose to live intimately with, should have a Christ-oriented life purpose. And how often is this principle violated when Christians get married? Mark Twain was the pen name of Samuel Clements. As a young man, he fell in love with a beautiful girl named Livy. Although he was not a Christian, they got married. And being devoted to her Lord, she wanted to have a family Bible reading and prayer at meals. After they got married, This was done for a time, but one day Sam said, Livy, you go on with this yourself if you want to. Leave me out. I don't believe in your God, and you're just making a hypocrite out of me. Fame and affluence came to the couple. There were court appearances in Europe. They were riding high, and Livy all the while was getting further and further away from her early devotion to her Lord. In an hour of bitter need, Sam Clement said, Livy, if your Christian faith can help you now, turn to it. And Livy replied, I can't, Sam. It was destroyed a long time ago. You see, living so intimately for so long, with an unbeliever, tore her faith down almost to the vanishing point, if she was a believer. So it happens to others who become unequally yoked. We need one another's encouragement as Christians. One friend of mine defines worldliness in this way. This is the counsel of the world. And his view of worldliness is this. Worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. You see, if we don't come together at least once a week in the church body to encourage one another that we're really the normal ones, and we've been out in the world feeling that we're awkward and that we're not normal, we're made to feel that our Christianity is not normal, we need to come together and say, you know what? Scripture says that we're the normal ones if we abide by his word. And those out in the world are not. Abraham Kuyper, a great... Theologian and prime minister of the Netherlands around the turn of the century said if you put a normal person on an island where only insane people live, it's only a matter of time before that normal sane person becomes, well, to reflect the traits of this insane community. Because we have a built-in trait to want to be accepted by people, and there will be a penchant to want to reflect that community that we are in. See, when you begin to walk and the influence isn't checked, you begin to become more permanently identified, you stand. And when that's not checked, you sit, and you not just are a sinner, you become a scoffer of those who are godly. Well, having described the happy person as one who doesn't uh, live life out in the intimate acquaintance of the counsel of the ungodly, notice what verse 2 describes describes what is done positively to gain happiness. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. We have a second ingredient for happiness here. First, the happy person desires to learn God's word. The idea here is that happiness and successful living comes from living out our life in the counsel of God's word instead of the counsel of the world. So it begins by desiring to learn God's word, this word for delight, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In a cognate language of Arabic, it can mean when you look on a woman, you can't take your eyes off of her, and that's the idea here, desire from within. In fact, the verbal form of this word is used in Esther chapter 2, in verse 14, where the king looks upon Esther, in context, and he so delights in her, he chooses her to be his king. Uh, He's not legalistically saying there, oh, you know, I just have a duty. I have no desire for you. You you know, I, 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 I just must find a queen. No, he has a desire from within to want to be with her. I remember before my wife and I were married, beginning to get to know one another. I had a great desire within to get to know her. I don't remember calling her on the phone uh, when I would ask her for a date and saying to myself in my mind, "Oh, I, I guess I need to be someone who just needs to be a maybe a, a, a normal young man and, and go out with a, a woman." I'll force myself. I, I, I must ask her to uh, go out with me. Uh, it's, it's my duty. No, I wanted to be with her. I was attracted from within. That's the idea here. It's not a legalistic obligation. I've got to read the Bible today to be spiritual. No, it's a desire from within. It is an obligation, by the way, but one we love, one we delight in. There should be an inner heart desire, and if you and I don't have that, we should pray that the Lord would give it to us. The happy person not only desires to learn God's word, but... Notice the second part of verse two. In his law he meditates day and night. The hap- happiness comes not just by desiring, but by continually meditating on God's word. Now this word for meditate, um, it's, a, it's a very, it's a continual process, a very thorough process. One person has uh, compared it to a cow, a cow chewing its cud. You know, cow chews, you know, the, the grass up, swallows it, and it comes back up again. Not too appetizing, but choose it again, I'm told. I know nothing about cows. This is what I'm told. And uh, so it's a, it's a thorough chewing. It's a continual process. In fact, look at Psalm 2 and verse 2 again. The Kings, uh, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? You see that phrase, devising a vain thing? The same word for Meditate. They're meditating on something quite different from God's law. They want to throw it off here. They're meditating on a purpose to rebel against the Lord. But it is not just a one-time thing. It is a, they're plotting. They're thinking. They're conniving. It's a continual process of thought. And so, on the other side of the coin, to meditate in God's law is a continual process. And that's brought out by the end of verse 2. Day and night. It's a characteristic. It's thorough. It's continual. You know, I remember uh, I was in England for a year before my wife and I were married, and we were writing back and forth. And I remember I would get her letters, and I I would read them over and over again, analyzing each line. Does she love me? Is this this expression that she said? because she was keeping her cards close to her chest at that point. And uh, sometimes perhaps I read too much into it. But I was looking at it very carefully. Do We look at Scripture in that way, with the inner desire to learn what God is saying to us. Psalm 119 says in this respect, verse ninety seven: oh Lord, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. You see, if it's your meditation you love it. And if you don't love it, if we don't love it, pray that God will give us grace to have a desire for it. And that, by the way, isn't there's an element there when, even when we don't desire to come to God's word, we should. Because that's part of our covenant faithfulness to God. And I believe if we do that faithfully, he will revive in us a desire for his word. Why? Because Acts 7 says it is a living word. It is a living word. It is not a dead word, and it performs its work in us, and it touches our heart, and it produces increasing life in us. Verse 72 of Psalm 119 The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Do we desire it more than money? Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do we desire it more than food, especially those sweet foods that we love? Now, verse 3 tells us what's the result of characteristically meditating on God's word. Well, let's read it, Psalm Psalm 1, verse 3. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. You see, through meditating on God's word, the godly person's life is spiritually nourished and becomes successful. This verse is giving us an illustration of what verse 2 has said, of what this meditating person is like, like a flourishing tree in the following ways. Number one, firmly planted, stable and strong in faith. Two, by streams of water. And by the way, probably what we have in mind here are irrigation streams, irrigation canals. So that we're not just talking about uh, what the water does to the life of the tree, but we're also talking about the sure care of a gardener. So it is with the meditating person. It yields its fruit. It does not wither. The person bears spiritual fruit. This person is ultimately successful in all that this person does. Look again at the end of verse 3. Whatever he does, he prospers. Now, does that mean that the the health and wealth gospel is true, that if you're faithful to God, he will bless you materially in this life. It is a popular version of Christianity, especially if you turn your television on on Sunday morning. Is that the case? That's what the text says. Well, it's very important that... uh, I, I do believe, I want you to know, I do believe that the health and wealth gospel is true. But not necessarily in this life. God is not bound to bless us in this, in this life. He may bless us as, as a foreshadowing of the life to come in the new heavens and earth. But he's not bound to. But we will have perfect health in the new heavens and earth because of the resurrection body. So yes, this verse indeed is talking about ultimate Prospering, maybe not in the near term, but ultimately the long term. Why do I say that? Look at that phrase right, at the very, right before the last phrase of verse 3. And its leaf does not wither. Yields its fruit in the season, and its leaf does not wither. That phrase is used later in Ezekiel 47. And it is referring back to the psalm. In Ezekiel 47, I want to read it for you. Verse 12, And by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Did you get that phrase? Their leaves will not wither. Now, that phrase is the exact phrase as in Psalm 1. Verse 3, at this point, if my wife were here, she would say, so what difference does that make? Okay, that's interesting. The point is, Ezekiel 37 is about the new heavens and earth. And it's showing this is ultimate prospering. This is not just health and wealth prospering in this life. God may be gracious and give us that occasionally, but not always. And furthermore, that this is referring ultimately to the new creation over which Christ rules. Revelation chapter 22 tells us clearly. You see, Scripture explains Scripture, and we need to listen to it. In the new heavens and earth, chapter 22, verse 1, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, just as there were trees on either side of the river in Ezekiel. Forty-seven, twelve, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, just as in Ezekiel, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And remember, Ezekiel said that their leaves were for healing at the end of verse 12. So this is indeed developing what Ezekiel said would happen in the new heavens and earth, and yet it's now related to Christ as the ruler over the new heavens and the earth. For verse 3 in Revelation 22, after it says, the tree was for the healing of the nations, its leaves, there will no longer be any curse in it, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. So the psalm is talking about ultimate things here. This is not just for here and now. It is because here and now begins to determine the then and there. As water then is the source of the tree's nourishment, and abundant life, so is God's word the source of our nourishment and abundant life. This last phrase of verse 3 especially stresses that all endeavors associated with this person's life purpose will be brought to successful conclusion in the new heavens and the new earth, indeed, through resurrection. My wife, Dorinda, has permitted me to say something about her at this point, because it's not completely um, flattering. It's about her view of growing plants around the house. She does not have a green thumb, and uh, every once in a while, she goes to the greenhouse, gets this, uh, uh, in the spring especially, um, gets this inspiration, and buys plants and puts them in the windowsills, and fertilizes them, but you know, inevitably, I mean, she's... She has a business, and she forgets to water them and fertilize them. So that in one of our houses, there were these big windowsills, and we call them death row. Because <laughs> were it's just the way it was. They died, and um, yet our daughter, our teenage daughter at the time, by the way, my, my, my wife has solved the problem. She buys plastic plants that look, look like, like the real thing. So she has to dust them about every two weeks because they begin to collect dust. So she does take care of those once every two weeks, and they don't die. Now, our teenage daughter loves plants, and, and, and she would have them in her room, and she would water them and fertilize them. They would, they would just flourish and uh, bloom. Um, it's the same with our approach to the Bible. If we go to it only occasionally, our spiritual roots will not be sunk deep in the Lord. So that when trouble comes, sometimes we're too unstable. We don't have the deep roots. We get easily upset at others or at the Lord. We lose control. We need to be continually by the water of God's word so that our roots will go deep, will be nourished, and that we'll bear godly fruits. Listen to what Jeremiah says in that regard, also alluding back to the psalm, Jeremiah 17 and verses 7. Eight. He says this: "Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water, that extends its roots by a stream, and will not listen, and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green, and he will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit." that's a further commentary on the psalm. When we go to God's word continually, in this way we grow closer to God and this is what part of what true happiness is, taking joy in our relationship with the Lord. So the godly person finds happiness and ultimate success in not living out life in the counsel of the ungodly world, but in the counsel of God. In his word. And in the light of the New Testament, we can say, in the light of God in Christ's word. Now, in verses 4 through 5, we have a change. It's a sobering change. We find there the wicked person's life is contrasted with the godly person's life. Notice verse 4. And verse 4 starts this way. Now, my Bible has the wicked are not so, but that's not what the Hebrew has. The Hebrew has, not so are the wicked. It places that negative contrast first to highlight it. Not so are the wicked. This is a complete contrast then with the godly person. You've got to go back through the attributes of the godly person to see how the ungodly person is not so. They're unlike the happy meditating person since their lives are without foundation and purpose. Notice, if we go back through verses 1 to 3, the wicked do live their life out in the counsel of the wicked. And they stand in the path of sinners, they sit in the seat of scoffers. They don't delight in the law of the Lord, verse 2, and they don't meditate in it day and night. Verse 3, they're not like a tree planted by streams of water. They don't yield fruit their leaves do wither. And in whatever they do, they do not ultimately prosper. So notice what verse verse 4 says. The wicked, not so are the wicked, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. They're, They're compared to blown chaff. Now, where I have lived in New England and the Midwest and Wheaton, again in Philadelphia in the fall, you get these leaves, On the road, the cars come by and kind of crunch them up uh, as they run over them, and it doesn't take much of a gust of wind to blow them every which way. They have no root. They have no foundation. And that's actually the picture here. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. They have no foundation. And so you'll notice that uh, it makes sense why they have no foundation, again, because of uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar? The people's devising a vain thing. By the way, they're meditating. Remember that word for devise is meditating? They're meditating on a vain thing. Their meditation comes to vanity. Their meditation is like an early morning breath that you breathe it out in the cold. and It's there for a second and it dissipates. But the godly person's meditating has effect in fruit. Why? Not only because God's word is living, as Acts 7 says, and as this verse really suggests, but because of Isaiah 55. My word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent and for us as it comes to us, as we imbibe it and make it a part of us. It does its work in us and produces fruit. It gives us a foundation and ultimately has the effect of causing us to prosper in the new heavens and the new earth, though that prospering does start now. But these people in Psalm 2, they take their stand against the Lord. Verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. They don't realize it. They're throwing their foundation away. And so do they, do they have much of a foundation? Look at verse 9. You will shatter them. Speaking of the Messiah, you'll shatter them with a rod of iron. You'll shatter them like earthenware. They'll be like little pieces of pottery, which, again, the wind can blow away. And what happens to these people? Verse 12 of Psalm 2, do homage to the sun. lest he become angry, you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. What's the basis of our lives husbands is it, is it to provide for your family is that what you find ultimate meaning in husbands and wives is it to find ultimate meaning in your relationship with each other or in your children that's not enough i remember when i was younger uh, around 18 the time i became a christian up to that point i'd committed my life to sports that was the ultimate meaning in my life that's what i found value in certainly not enough The only thing that's enough that provides a sure foundation is a faith relationship with Christ, that he came as the God-man, he died for sin, took the penalty of our sin, achieved righteousness that we would be dressed in it, and he rose again from the dead as the Lord God of heaven and earth. Now, there are many in our churches who claim to have such a faith relationship and a foundation, but they don't make God's word in Scripture the basis of their life. Perhaps for some, they're immature, they don't realize their need, and eventually, prayerfully, they will. Others, maybe they are only professing believers, and they don't really know the Lord. Or if they do, they shouldn't have any assurance that they do, because for years, they're going on without coming to the Word of God and being nourished by it. Verse 5 tells us the result of those people who have no spiritual foundation for their lives. What's the result? Look at verse 5. Chapter 1 of the psalm. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Since the wicked have no spiritual foundation, but they're blown like chaff, as verse 4 says, the natural conclusion is they're not going to stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Who will stand? The assembly of the righteous. These people won't. In fact, there's an irony here. Just as the godly and ungodly are separated on earth, the ungodly don't want to have any fellowship with the godly. So God says, okay, you don't like my people in this age? Then you don't have to be with them in the age to come. You'll be separate from them and me in the age to come. Punished by means of their own sin. What we're talking about here in verse 5 is ultimate prospering. Of verse 3, what's ultimate prospering? Standing in the judgment, in the assembly of the righteous. Do you want to stand in the assembly of the righteous and trust in Christ, come to his word, and live on it? This is the ultimate success and happiness. Now, verse 6 gives us further information about verse 5. I think verse 5 is probably the main point of the whole psalm. It's what ultimate prospering and success is. We find a further explanation about it in verse 6. So verse 6 probably forms part of that main point. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the idea is this, that God has intimate acquaintance with the righteous. He He knows our way. He knows their way. And the implication not stated here is... Because of that, the assembly of the righteous will stand, which has already been suggested at the end of verse 5. So he knows the righteous now, the faithful, and he will know us in the age to come and will stand on the foundation of Christ, as we've seen some of these references from the psalm ultimately point. But the way of the wicked will perish. God does not know them. And will not know them in a salvific, in a salvation sense in the age to come, and so they will perish. And as Psalm one ends, so does Psalm two. Look at Psalm two verse 12, "Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled." And we get an element of wrath here that's involved in judgment. But notice how it also ends. Psalm 2 ends in the way Psalm 1 began. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we could summarize the psalm in this way. That true happiness and success come from not living out our lives in the counsel of the world, but in the counsel of God and Christ's word. Happiness and success come how? How? from not living out our lives in the counsel of the world, but in the counsel of God and Christ themselves, their word. What's the basis of your life and mine? Are we conformed to the ungodly counsel of this world or to God's counsel in his word? Romans 12 says, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. Think his thoughts after him. And what's the result then? You may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing, pleasing to him and complete. Do we we come to the Bible every day and read it, pray over it? If we don't, why not? What are we going to do about it? If we do, you're progressing in a thriving living relationship with God and you're happy. You're growing in your happiness and may the Lord continue to cause you to persevere in that. Do we have a daily family Bible reading if we have families in prayer? If not, why not? If not, what are we going to do about it? If we do, you're you're growing, you're progressing in a thriving living relationship with God and may he give you perseverance and grace to continue in that. Perhaps many of us don't have such times in Scripture because to one degree or another, we're conformed to the world. And there there are a few ways that we can be conformed that's a little subtle. There are a number of them. I'm going to mention just three here. One, we can be discouraged from coming to God's word continually because of the expectation of the sensational. What do I mean by that? Well, we Americans are often so enthralled with the continual expectation of the sensational, we don't often appreciate the uniqueness of the ordinary. I mean, to watch a movie now, if you, if you watch a movie now and compare it with a 1950 movie, I mean, most young people say, boring, and there's got to be all kinds of action, all kinds of noise. Uh, the sensational pulls us in. Um... We put a book down if it's not just grabbing us at every point. And what happens with Scripture if we, when we come to it, we've heard, "Hey, the Scriptures—it's going to really do a, a good job on me." And maybe we don't understand it well. Maybe we do, but it seems to make no difference. We don't get an apocalyptic shot of spiritual adrenaline from it, perhaps, and we get discouraged. I would suggest that we appreciate scripture and the uniqueness of the ordinary about scripture. I compare it to a time when I was getting sore throats and headaches, not feeling good, kind of feeling weak. And so somebody told me about these super-duper vitamins. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But I took these vitamins, and I was expecting a shot of adrenaline. And I didn't get it. So I got discouraged. I said, you know, flush the vitamins. And uh, finally someone said, no, no, you've got to take them day in and day out, every day. Don't worry about how you feel. Slowly but surely, they're going to build up your immunity, your immune system. And uh, so I did that, and um, I I, I did it. I got a little bit healthier. Um, The idea is this. You may not feel any different, but you are getting stronger. And that's the case. With the reading of the scriptures, but there's a second thing that can discourage us that 's a little bit subtle. discourage us from coming to the scriptures and the way the psalm's talking about. Another way we can become conformed to the world we 're often very active in our lives, but it is a passive activity during our periods of relaxation and Here, the media is a huge influence upon us, often a more formative influence upon our minds and the minds of our children than uh, the Scripture is. So we're often more shaped, and our children are more often shaped by the characters on the television, for example, than the characters in Scripture. So it's, it's surprising that Johnny wants to be more like a movie star or a pro-athlete or a rock star than Daniel, Paul, or Christ. Are we surprised when our daughter's prime concern is about clothes, in appearance, more than anything else. Are we surprised at so many premarital pregnancies when the media sends these kinds of messages continually that this is normal? In contrast to the men and women of the scriptures, many Christians sense only weakly the way God intervenes in the world and in each individual life. And I think it's because of the media view of the world. When was the last time you saw the evening news, perhaps, on the main channel? And the person got up, and before they started, they say, let's let's ask for God's wisdom on the news of the day. If you heard that, and a friend or a relative was in the kitchen, said, come here, something weird's happening on the news. (laughs) That's not ordinary. You see, that's weird. We're taught the world, the media view of the world is that God is not active in the everyday affairs. And it is not normal to come to Scripture to get guidance in the everyday affairs and to pray. That's not normal. You're weird. So again, that definition, worldliness is whatever any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And that itself can discourage us from coming to the Scriptures when we listen too much to the counsel of the world. That, that is really not necessary. For living in the world. In fact, it's kind of odd. But there's one last way. It's what I call the busyness syndrome. Our lives are often so hectic and busy that many things get pushed out that are important, including a continual coming to Scripture. We always feel like we have to be on the go. The well known Christian family counselor James Dobson was asked the question what's the biggest obstacle facing the family? This was about 20 years ago or so when he was asked that question, but I don't think it's changed. He replied, It is overcommitment, time pressure. There is nothing that will destroy a family life more insidiously than hectic schedules and busy lives where spouses are too exhausted to communicate, too worn out to have sex, too fatigued to talk to the kids. And I would add, And read the Bible? That frantic lifestyle is just as destructive as one involving outbroken sin. If Satan can't make you sin, he concludes he'll make you busy and that's pretty close to the same thing. All of these are examples of how we can be subtly influenced not to fulfill the purpose of Psalm 1. No. Happiness and success come by not living out our lives in the counsel of the ungodly world but in the counsel of in their word.